This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, are executive health programs a non-evidence-based rip-off? You're better off being guided by somebody that knows you as opposed to one of these institutions who doesn't know you. They just want to pick your pocket for a large sum of money. Plus, the way prostate biopsies should be done, an important Australian finding which might have cracked open what causes autoimmune problems like multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease and rheumatoid arthritis. And speaking of celiac disease, where the immune system in the bowel reacts to gluten in the diet, a study in this week's Medical Journal of Australia reports on the prevalence and incidence of non-celiac wheat and gluten sensitivity, as reported by people who may be avoiding wheat and gluten. And there's a lot of such people. Professor Nick Talley is a world authority on what are called functional bowel disorders, things like irritable bowel syndrome. His clinical work is at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle, but he's also editor-in-chief of the Medical Journal of Australia. Welcome back to the Health Report, Nick. Pleasure to be here, Norman. So what are the symptoms people complain of? Well, people with functional gut disorders complain about bloating. They may have fullness, diarrhea or constipation, abdominal pain. These are very common symptoms and the causes of these symptoms are largely unknown. But one of the potential causes might be in the food we eat and wheat is one of those potential uh, possibilities. And that's what we explored in this study. And what did you actually look at? Because gluten is in wheat. Um, so you're looking at wheat separately from gluten. And what people's... Well, we, thought, we, we, asked, we asked people about wheat sensitivity. Now, you're right. There are many proteins in, uh, in wheat, including gluten and, and gliadins. And there's also fermentable carbohydrates, what are called FODMAPs by some, uh, like fructan. Um, so there are a number of different components that potentially might induce gut symptoms. And, uh, but what we did in this study was to work out uh, how many people were complaining about wheat sensitivity, what happens over time to these people, and the association with functional gut symptoms and, and other risk factors. So what did you find? Because you followed, about, what, 1,300 so we, people? We did, about 1,300 people, and there's an epidemic an epidemic of people reporting wheat sensitivity, really quite remarkable, and a lot of people on a gluten-free diet. 14% of the population uh, reported um, wheat sensitivity. They didn't have celiac disease, but they reported wheat made them either unwell or caused some kind of problem. And 25% of the population nearly. Um, were actually uh, on a, on a gluten-free diet or a low-gluten diet. Not everyone was on a gluten-free, about 4%. So really very significant numbers of people avoiding gluten and then also very significant numbers of people with sensitivity, they believe at least, to wheat products. And one of the things you looked at, so that's the prevalence, how many people have got it at any one time. You also looked at the instance, how many people are moving in and presumably how many people are moving out of the condition. That's right. And we found about 2% per year sort of developed this problem and around about a similar number seemed to improve. It seems to disappear. And this fits other data which suggests these, the symptoms can come and go. Um, and uh, I guess it's the first time that's been reported anywhere in the world. So at least that's a little bit of further insight into what's going on at the population level. How real is it? I mean, you'd have to say well, well, pe good... <laughs> people are feeling it for themselves, therefore it's real for them. 
it's real for them, but but clearly there's a group of different conditions here. And other work that we've done suggests we've got to be very careful about the interpretation. Certainly some people probably are having a reaction to something in the wheat that is actually inducing symptoms. I already mentioned it could be gluten, it could be gliadin and other proteins, it could be fructan, it could be one of those components. But a lot of people are probably misattributing wheat as the, as the culprit because when you do double-blind withdrawal studies and then re-challenge, a lot of people when you re-challenge don't, res- don't respond to having wheat reintroduced. When they don't so know that, that it's wheat. That yeah, exactly. They're blinded. So there's so something going on. It, something else going yep. on. And a sensitive gut is probably what's going on in those cases, but not related to the wheat per se. Hmm. Now, I think you discovered in other work that people believe that you know, people believe that gluten-free diet is actually healthy for them, or a wheat-free diet is healthy. And you've been looking at hmm. whether it is a healthy diet. We have, and um, you know, obviously, if you have celiac disease, a gluten-free diet is critical no doubt about it, and it's the best diet and it's the healthiest diet. But if you're not celiac disease, a gluten-free diet is definitely not a healthier diet. The evidence points this way. Is it an unhealthy diet? It it probably is, actually. There's evidence, for example, of a small but, but certainly potentially important increased risk of what's called metabolic syndrome, so the cardiovascular kinds of problems. This is on a gluten-free diet. There's some evidence that uh, you may ingest toxins like arsenic in excess amounts with a gluten-free diet, if that's your permanent diet. Why? Uh, There's no evidence that's harmful because it's a small amount of arsenic, but it certainly has been uh, shown in studies. Um, And no evidence really you can lose weight on a gluten-free diet. It's not a weight loss diet. So there's no real benefits that may even cause harm in non-celiac situations. Just a quick question, why would you have arsenic? Well, it's thought to be the rice component um, and uh, the way it's produced, um, at least that's the thought. No one actually knows, but the data look reasonably compelling um, that that's the case. So for somebody who's got an upset tummy, like a Rebel syndrome, is it suck it and see? You try it out, you go on a gluten-free diet, see if you feel better. I mean, is that, is that the way to go? Uh, Look, we don't think so at this stage. What we're trying to understand is the extent of the problem and then how many people may actually have a wheat sensitivity and then what is the component that really matters. Um, uh, Certainly we have some emerging evidence. There are some people who are truly wheat protein sensitive, but that's a minority at best. Um, Some people are more sensitive to the, the fermentable carbohydrate piece and cutting those out can be helpful. You need a, a dietitian to help you sometimes with, with that kind of approach. But just going on a gluten-free diet and when if you respond feeling that that's clearly the, the cause, I, I, I don't believe that's the best approach. It needs to be guided and, and, and looked at carefully. And Nick, we need better tests as well. Nick, thank you. Thank you very much. 
Laureate Professor Nick Talley is in the Faculty of Health and Medicine at the University of Newcastle and is also Editor-in-Chief of the Medical Journal of Australia. And this is RN's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. One of the perks for senior people in large corporations is that they can participate in executive health programs involving regular checks on their health. In fact, companies sometimes see executive screening as a kind of insurance for key people whose death or unexpected illness would be inconvenient for shareholders and is therefore worth the 25000 bucks the programs can cost. Trouble is, according to a new US study, these executive programs offer tests that are pretty useless and in fact could be dangerous. And there are lessons for Australians who don't live in the corporate stratosphere. David Brown led the study. He's professor of cardiology at Washington University in St. Louis. And it all started when he was targeted by online ads. Yes, it's become a recurrent issue when I'm on the internet and doing Google searches that I seem to be targeted for these executive screening programs from many of the top-ranked cardiology programs in the United States. What do the ads actually promise? That you can either ensure that your health is good, find problems before they begin that may be life-altering. So what made you want to study it? Because many of the screening tests that are used in medicine in a much more focused way have not been shown to prolong life. So if those screening tests are not prolonging life in a targeted population, it would be very unlikely that they would help anyone in an indiscriminately used way with the only qualifying criterion being that you have cash money to pay for the program. So what did you do in the study? A medical student went down the U.S. News and World Report list of the top cardiology and cardiac surgery programs in the United States, and he called them and asked if they had an executive screening program, how much it cost, and did they have a standard package and various different upgraded premium packages. And presumably took a dive into what they were actually doing. Yes, and asked for a list of what the programs consisted of. And what did you find? We called the 25 programs. We got responses from 21. Three programs said they didn't offer any kind of program like that. The remaining 18 offered a total of 28 different packages for executives, as they called them, which is a euphemism for people with cash money to spend. And the cost ranged from the lowest was just under $1,000 U.S. to $25,000 U.S. at the Cleveland Clinic. And what did 1000 bucks buy you versus 25000 bucks? Just more extensive screening, more tests. So what tests were they actually doing? We were focused on the cardiac tests, which were the majority of them. But the most common cardiac testing would be something relatively cheap like an electrocardiogram, which has been shown to be of no value in this context, to things that are much more expensive and potentially even dangerous, such as cardiac stress tests using uh, nuclear dyes, which give you radiation, CAT scans of the arteries of the heart, a plethora of blood tests that have been shown to be of no value when applied indiscriminately, ultrasound testing of the aorta. And your conclusion was what? Well, we took the test and we went through the guidelines of the major relevant professional societies in the United States to determine whether any of these were recommended by any reputable panel in the United States to otherwise healthy people. And we found not a single test that was offered in any of these programs is recommended 
to be applied indiscriminately in any environment. Not even a cholesterol test? Not even. I mean, if a 25-year-old who happens to to own his own company comes in for one of these tests, it would be inappropriate to give a 25-year-old a cholesterol test. So your conclusion was they're wasting their money at best. At worst? At worst, you can imagine the scenario where somebody gets a stress test, which is not a perfect test. It is abnormal. That abnormal test leads to an invasive procedure that could be associated with complications, including death. So there's this cascade effect of one inappropriate test leading to another inappropriate test that at worst can kill you and at best can cause all sorts of anxiety until you have it proven that what the original mistaken test said you had, you actually don't have. The other unrecognized problem with this is all of these programs are teaching hospitals. So it's sending a message to the trainees, whether they be medical students or residents or cardiology trainees, that it's okay to ignore the data in patients that have money because they deserve a different level of care. I mean, we have enough disparities of care in the United States with our system to add this to that. That sends a message that money is more important than science. So then it's just a money-making exercise, cynically. It's very easy money. And I think the real hope is something will be found in some very wealthy person that will lead to the conclusion that this institution saved my life and I'm going to leave my fortune to you when I die or I'm going to make a million-dollar contribution to you. And this is set against the background that there's almost no value to the annual physical either. Correct. So this is just an elaboration of the annual physical on steroids. So what's your advice to people who think, what should I know about my health and well-being at different ages that would make a difference? Well, I mean, I think there are things that you need to know as you go through life. You need to know your blood pressure, as you mentioned earlier. You need to know your cholesterol. But you should be guided by your own personal physician who can assess these things. You shouldn't be misled that there's no possible harm, and if the money isn't important to you, what difference does it make? Because as we discussed earlier, there is possible harm. You're better off being guided by somebody that knows you as opposed to one of these institutions who doesn't know you. They essentially just want to pick your pocket for a large sum of money. David Brown, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. David Brown is Professor of Cardiology at Washington University in St. Louis. Speaking of controversial screening tests, one of the most popular yet problematic is the PSA blood test to detect a higher than average risk of prostate cancer. A raised PSA can lead to a prostate biopsy. And the way it's mostly done around the world, the biopsy can in fact kill you or make you very ill. The landscape is changing, though, with MRI scanning and a different and safer biopsy technique. Jeremy Grummet is a Melbourne urologist and has published a paper with other Australian and overseas urologists saying it's time to abandon the so-called transrectal prostate biopsy. So clench your buttocks and strap in. Hi, hi Jeremy. Hi, Norman. How are you? I'm fine. So tell us what this, uh, about this transrectal one, the one that until recently most urologists have done. Yeah, so you're right. By far the most common way of doing a prostate biopsy, uh, at least around the world, 
is via the rectum. And that's because the prostate sits immediately in front of the rectum. So it's a very easy point of access, if you like, to obtain tissue from the prostate gland when we're worried that a a person might have uh, a significant prostate cancer. So it's a very simple uh, test. It only takes a few minutes. Um, However... It's not uh, sterile. It's not sterile. That's right. In fact, I mean, we, we have a, in surgery, we have a range of classifications of procedures such as clean, contaminated or dirty. And this is a dirty procedure because the needle is passing from the rectum, which uh, as a storage unit for feces is clearly uh, not sterile, um, into a a gland, which is the prostate gland, which is sterile uh, and also has a very rich blood supply, which means that if any bacteria are introduced, uh, then they have uh, a rapid way of circulating around the body and that can cause septicemia. And what is the rate of complications? So there uh, varies around the world. There are a whole lot of different reports. But what we do know is that there is a general trend of increasing septic complications from this procedure. And that's why um, we are mounting this campaign to uh, change from a transrectal approach to prostate biopsy to uh, going via the skin. So that's called transperineal. So it's the skin between the scrotum and the anus. That's correct, yeah. So we wrote a paper on this, and as you said, we managed to gather together um, you know, real uh, opinion leaders, uh, scientific opinion leaders around the world to publish this paper, and we've dubbed it uh, Trexit, uh, borrowing from the, the Brits. Um, and the reason is we want to end transrectal biopsy and, and convert it, as I say, to the, uh, to the skin approach. Now, some surgeons say, oh, the transperineal approach, whilst it, it looks okay, uh, it's more painful. You've got to give a person a general anaesthetic. You don't get a good of, as good a view of the prostate gland, and therefore you're not quite sure where you're heading for the biopsy, and it's more expensive. Is uh, so? Some of those are true. Um, in terms Which ones? Of, well, in terms of uh, the uh, ex- expense and the need for a general anaesthetic, that has been true up until now, and this is why we think the time is ripe to change people's practice. So in Australia, for example, um, transperineal biopsy has really taken off because we've got the capacity or have had the capacity at least to perform this procedure under a general anaesthetic. Now, when I talk to my uh, international colleagues in the UK or the US where the patient volumes are simply too high, they just haven't been able to get a transperineal biopsy over the line because it would clog up their operating theatres. So there's a real problem uh, in that in that uh, sphere. However, in very recent times, literally in the last couple of years, what we've found, and there's published evidence on this now, is that we can actually perform a transperineal biopsy under local anaesthetic with good patient comfort and with just as good, if not better, cancer detection rates than the transrectal methods. Now you really have my buttocks clenching. So (laughs) how many uh, transperineal biopsies does a urologist have to do to get to be be good at it? Transperineal biopsy? Well, that's a good question. Um, Actually, not that many. Um, Probably in the order of, say, 10 or 20. It really depends on the sort of training you get. But really not many, as long as you've got... A, an experienced uh, practitioner or a supervisor there to help you. And in fact, that's exactly what part of this Trexit campaign that we're trying to launch uh, involves is having people, and, and we're dotted all over the world, who are experienced in transperineal biopsy, teaching our colleagues how to perform it so that we don't have any further obstacles in uh, rolling out this procedure. 
Now, um, I'm not going to have an argument with you about the PSA test, but yep. when, you, when you get a PSA test, yep. um, the, the, the pattern now is to have an MRI scan, is it not, yep. to see whether you need a biopsy in the first place. So just, yeah, just, that, just talk us through the pathway very briefly. I haven't got much time left, sure. but very briefly, the pathway that a man should be aware of so that he asks and his partner asks the right questions of yeah, the cool. urologist. So, so that's that's been another huge advance in, in recent times in prostate cancer diagnosis. So we're, we're switching to transperineal biopsy, but you're absolutely right. Um, if you have an elevated PSA, the current guidelines now recommend that the next step, once you've ascertained or confirmed that it is indeed an elevated PSA by repeat testing, is then non-invasive imaging with a prostate MRI that is performed by an experienced radiologist. So the beauty of getting an MRI, if it's performed and read properly, is that if it's negative, that is if it's all clear, not showing any evidence of cancer, then that man can avoid a biopsy altogether in most situations. And in addition to that, if the MRI is positive, instead of us just firing needles at random across the, the prostate, which is what we've done previously, we then have a lesion or an area, a zone within the prostate to target our biopsies to. And so for that reason, and, and we've now got you know high level evidence showing this, targeted biopsies that are performed subsequent to an MRI showing a lesion are even more accurate in detecting the, the sort of prostate cancers that we need to find. That is the more aggressive ones that are harmful. But you've got to be sure that the radiologist knows what he or she's doing. Yeah, and that's a really important caveat. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Norman. Jeremy Grummet is Associate Professor of Surgery at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. There are many autoimmune diseases. The common ones are rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, celiac, multiple sclerosis, and type 1 diabetes. The feature they all have in common is that the person's own immune system attacks part of the body, from the lining of the joints in rheumatoid to insulin-producing cells in the pancreas and diabetes to the electrical insulation or nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord in multiple sclerosis. Treatments range from eliminating the offending substance that triggers the immune reaction, that's gluten and celiac disease, and you heard Nick talking about it earlier, to replacing the hormone, that's insulin and diabetes, to clobbering specific cells in the immune system, for example, in multiple sclerosis and psoriasis. But the fundamental process that brings on an autoimmune disease has been a mystery. Now, research at the Garvin Institute in Sydney and several other centres in Australia and overseas may have cracked it, and in so doing, giving a clue to new treatments. The research group leader at the Garvin is Professor Chris Goodnow, who's spent his career studying this problem and the function of white blood cells in the immune system. Welcome to the Health Report, Chris. Thank you for having me, Norm. Tell me about these rogue cells that you've been working with. Well, you know, we've been uh, chasing them down now for uh, probably 25 or more years in my career. And uh, the dream for many, many years, unattainable, was uh, could we, in any autoimmune disease, isolate the actual cells that were causing the person's uh, terrible symptoms. Uh, they might be extremely rare. We didn't even know if they were going to be in the bloodstream. So what are they? Are they lymphocytes? Are they, so in other words, they're white blood cells, are they? Yeah, so they're, they're lymphocytes. Uh, our body... We should just explain. We've got two kinds of white blood cells by and large, B cells and T cells. T cells are kind of the attacking cells. They attack... Um, the, the substance like a virus themselves, and B cells produce antibodies, and the antibodies attack the foreign substance. That's right. The B cells are the archers of the immune system. Uh, the T cells hand-to-hand -hand combat. And uh, the, uh, in any given autoimmune disease, uh, one or more of those cells has managed to get 
past a whole series of checkpoints that normally stop uh, these T or B cells from attacking any part of our body. Uh, much of my career has been figuring out those checkpoints uh, and what stops autoimmunity. But the big question... So these are different checkpoints from the checkpoint inhibitors in cancer? They are the same. Are they? In fact, that's where the concept and the, and the name comes from, checkpoint, uh, uh, from my own work. So, so when we hear about immunotherapy, which blocks the checkpoints, allows... In fact, the, in fact, it's also almost like creating an autoimmune disease to attack the cancer. It is. And in fact, uh, one of the promising signs that the immune system has been woken up to attack the cancer is, uh, is in a significant fraction of people, they also get an autoimmune disease as part of their immunotherapy. So it's a side effect of the... A side effect. A side effect. Uh, but it's correlated with a better response against the cancer. So how did you find these rogue cells? Yeah, so that, that was the tough bit uh, because... Uh, so I'm not buying 20 years of research into a five-minute interview. Yes. Well, uh, uh, the bottom line is they're, they're in some diseases we, we could find them uh, by... Oh, I won't go into all the technology, sure. but it involved combining the very latest state-of-the-art proteomics and genomics and uh, flow sorting. But it, the bottom line is we could fish out 25 or 50 cells from the blood, from 10 mils of blood from a person with very severe autoimmune disease of their blood vessels and, uh, and then go inside those individual cells and scan a million positions in, across the genome to see what was wrong with them. So there'd be billions of cells. I mean, this is worse than a needle in a haystack. So it'd be billions of cells in 10 mils of blood. And you find 50 out of a billion. That's right. And how do you know that they're causing the problem? And how come such a, a little cadre of cells causes such devastation? Well, that's where we had to put our thinking cap on. Uh, and so we chose one particular disease where we knew that what the antibody was that was really causing the problem. We could leverage 50 years of research on that. We had so a, this is an autoimmune disease that attacks the blood vessels? Attacks the blood vessels, either in the skin or in the kidneys or in the nerves. Uh, often needs to be treated very aggressively. Uh, and we had 50 years of research saying that, that when people had that particular antibody, it, it had a particular shape and set of characteristics, uh, what we call an idiotype. Uh, and we used that as our way in past the million decoy normal cells to grab a hold of the cells that were actually making the damaging antibody. And so essentially, even though it's only 50 cells, the antibody is the thing that causes havoc that they're producing in a, in a rogue sense. That's right. And we it's had a tag on the antibody from the serum for, through our colleagues in, in Adelaide at Flinders University. And then that tag uh, through the DNA and RNA got us to the cells and we knew we had the culprits. And you've called these lymphoma driver mutations. So what's it got to do with lymphoma? Yeah, so, well, that was a hypothesis that, that uh, my team developed back going back 13 years. Uh, it was controversial at the time and very hard to test. Because you can get lymphoma with celiac disease if, yes, you, if that's you're not right. on a good diet. That's right. And the disease that we were studying, uh, likewise, uh, cryoglobinemic vasculitis, hard to say, it also has a higher risk of lymphoma. So what we know in, in lymphoma is those are that's a single rogue lymphocyte that's gone extremely rogue, multiplied billions of times. And we now know from genome sequencing in that situation where you can get lots of those cells, that a typical person with lymphoma, uh, those rogue cells will have 10 to 20 different uh, corrupting mutations that are driving the lymphoma past all the checkpoints uh, to uncontrolled growth. 
Does this give you a treatable target? That's what we hope. Because there are lots of drugs for lymphoma, I think. Exactly. And, and so you've got to be very careful. This is the first huge step towards that. Uh, it's the first time ever we've been able to go isolate the cells that are causing the disease and go inside and see, ah, that's what's wrong with them. They've, they've got... Uh, and these are human cells rather than animal cells? They're human know? cells in the patient. Uh, and, and, the, and how generalizable do you think it is to all the other autoimmune diseases, which are, which are quite different in many ways? Because some of them are not antibody-mediated, some of them are the T cells. Absolutely. So that is a question that we're, is an immediate next step. We're, we're, we've already generalized it to other types of uh, cryoglobulinemic vasculitis that are triggered, for example, by a hepatitis C virus infection. But as you were saying, will it apply to celiac disease? We're working on that. Will it apply to rheumatoid arthritis, a common disease, or, or MS? So we're working on those as well. In, in some of these diseases, it, it, again, the challenge is that the needle in the haystack is going to be even rarer than the one we started with. But at least you've got a clue. Chris, thanks for joining us. Fascinating research. Thank you for having me. Chris Goodnow is Executive Director of the Garvin Institute in Sydney. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.